please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, that sat upon the throne. Over the last month or so, we have been in a rather extended digression on Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy, occasioned by his description by the elder in verse 5. Here the elder sets Jesus Christ forth as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the fulfillment of more than 4,000 years of prophetic oracles going back to that first promise of a son to Eve in the garden through the time of Abraham and his great-grandson Judah and finally down through the line of David. Jesus Christ as the focus of all, the point of all, and the fulfillment of all, the hope of the ages. This seemed to be fitting, uh, not only to gain a fuller understanding of these titles that are given to Christ here, but the elder bids John to behold him, to take a special notice of him, to gaze intently upon him, and it seemed fitting that we do so. This morning, I wanted to look at the first half of verse 6. Normally, I um, we will analyze a bit of Scripture and then derive uh, doctrine and practice in separate sections. This morning, we are not going to do that. Rather, we're going to look at what is really a 
a vast amount of material. I know it's just a half verse, but we have quite a full description and picture of Jesus Christ. Nothing could be more important for us as Christians than the answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? In the Christian life, we can become interested in many things, many important things, many uh, derivative principles and doctrines of our religion. But we should always hold before our eyes as the central concern, who is Jesus Christ? And how is he related to this thing under consideration? It's only then that we begin to consider all things in a right way. That is, in a spiritual and Christian way. Remember also that from the very beginning I pointed out that from ancient times this book has been called the Revelation of St. John the Divine. That's old English for theologian, John the Theologian. It was the belief of the ancients that this uh, small book set forth the entire system of Christian doctrine and could be useful for teaching the entire system of Christian doctrine, as well as a fullness of Christian practice. We have gotten a large taste of that, I hope, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So very practical in Christ's address to his churches. But here we see a very full Christology set forth in the scope of just two verses. Remember where we are and where John is by way of review. In the vision, John is, as it were, in the tabernacle, standing at the very door looking into the tabernacle, but able to turn and look around at the courtyard all around him as well as down from the courtyard, down onto the Roman world. It's almost as if the tabernacle has been pitched on the holy hill of Zion, and he's able to look down. John uh, looks into the tabernacle, and there is no more veil. He is able to see the Holy of Holies. The candlestick is there, which is the Holy Spirit of God, illuminating the seven churches. We have the priests, the priest kings, ministering in their 24 courses, here called the 24 elders. We have the four cherubs surrounding the throne of God, which in ancient times was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And now John focuses his attention intently upon that throne and he sees seated upon that throne, there is one sitting there, God the Father, and in his right hand he has a scroll, which is the proper and principal matter of our book and study. We are only now arriving at it, but this scroll is God's special providence to his church. The problem is that the book is sealed. It had been told John that he would receive a revelation Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, that is an opening or an unveiling. But when he finally comes to the book, it's sealed up. And not just with one seal, but seven seals. Most perfectly and completely sealed and closed up. 
And John is moved to tears by this situation. And no creature is found worthy to open the book. The elder uh, comes to instruct John. This is one of the a representative of one of the common people among Christ's flock. This common person comes and addresses the great apostle and tells him not to weep. John might have thought that there was an occasion for weeping inasmuch as this had ended in disappointment before. This vision, as begun by Daniel, had been interrupted at this point before. And Daniel, when he longed to understand further concerning these things, was told to go his way. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Daniel 12.9 So Daniel is bid to leave off asking and considering that the book was to be sealed up until the time of the end. Perhaps John is expecting a like response. But... The elder tells him not to weep and then he gives him a good reason that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, had prevailed to take the book, to open it and to loose its seven seals. In short, the elder tells him that Christ had prevailed to open the book. This is language of victory. And if you'll notice in your, in your Bible, this is the language, hath prevailed, or he has overcome. You see, it's altogether fitting that he be characterized as the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you remember the, the principal contents of that vision, Judah is first portrayed as a conquering one. He goes before his brethren in battle. He will take the prey. He will, as it were, be brought up on prey and then finally enter into his rest and kingship. A most remarkable vision. Here Jesus Christ is portrayed as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The great conqueror. And who of the sons of Judah ever conquered like our Jesus Many of the Judahites uh, did indeed conquer and win mighty victories for the people of God, but not, not a one ever prevailed over sin, the devil, and death. These were conquests that belonged to the lion of the tribe of Judah, as if there were no others in comparison with him. He is also described as the root, the offshoot, the branch of David. And many of the sons of David ruled well and ruled in glory. Many of them won mighty conquests. But who like our Jesus? Do you remember the angel's challenge? Who is worthy to take the scroll? Christ by his overcoming, by his conquests, has demonstrated himself to be worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals, and to reveal its contents. In describing Jesus Christ, and here we're coming to our proper matter this morning, in describing him as the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, his kingship is certainly in the foreground. Interestingly enough, he's not just presented as a king here, but in that it is given to him 
to reveal the contents of the scroll, his prophetic office is also in the foreground. As we make the turn to verse 6, we see Jesus Christ portrayed also as a priest. I want you to understand, and children, you should always remember that Christ is a prophet, priest, and king. This is a very good uh, beginning on learning his work, the office that he fulfilled as, as mediator. But I hope that uh, we are all beginning to see that this is not just the invention of theologians or some sort of nice and tidy way of summarizing this material. This grows very naturally out of the contents of Scripture itself. Can you think of a better way of expressing what we have in these two verses than Christ portrayed as a king, prophet of his church, and as her great high priest? Let us look at verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. I want you to first note that John says, and I beheld, and lo, something like behold and behold. You remember that the uh, elder had called upon John to look, to give his attention the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John is obedient to the call of the elder. He's instructed here by an inferior, but inasmuch as he is not too proud to receive instruction, he is improved by what he is told. He is moved from his grief, from his weeping, to comfort, because he was willing to listen and to obey. So the elder bids behold, and John beholds. Actually, says it twice. I looked, and I looked. I wanted to take from this a short application, and although we will be short with it in words, I hope that you'll be long with it in consideration. The application is obvious. Let us heed the counsel and instruction of God's word. And it is in this way that we receive comfort. When we neglect God's word, whether it be read or preached, whether it be uh, in private places or public places, it robs us of our comforts. It's very interesting. You begin to see something of the madness of sin and that we not only sin against God when we neglect his word, and its counsels, but we sin against ourselves and destroy our own comforts. Sin is indeed a great madness. And this brings brings us to a point of self-examination. I know you fairly well, little flock, and I know we, each and every one, have our points of struggle and suffering. I've known most of you long enough to have seen you pass through relatively peaceful times and times of exertion, difficulty, and even pain. But it is a good time to consider. We have had 
recent sermons on Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy and the comfort that it brings that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but that our religion has been sent down to us from heaven. And this gives purpose to all of our suffering and every difficulty that we face. We've also had sermons on communing with Christ in glory already in this life. And how this sweetens all of our experiences in this world. And so then the question comes, did you give good attention? Did, you, did your minds come back? to those words, even after we departed out of this place? Did you meditate upon these things and apply them, hiding them in your hearts so that uh, they would not escape from you, but that they would be useful in bringing comfort? I bring this up to point out something that I hope is relatively obvious. If you are in the midst of exertion and difficulty in particular, but really in any season, because difficulties eventually will come to all of us. But if you're in a season of difficulty, but you let the words read and preached quickly slip away from you, you've sinned against the remedy. And if we sin against the remedy that will bring us comfort, consolation, and hope, if we sin against that remedy, what help is there for us? When the word of God comes to us, we must give our attention. And one of the best ways to hold on to it is to put it into practice immediately so that we do not lose it. Consider the case of John. What comfort would there have been for John if John had simply been inconsolable and unwilling to listen to the elder, unwilling to obey the heavenly vision, there would have been no comfort for him. His comfort comes by first heeding and then obeying, and it brings a strong consolation to him indeed. After having been brought to despair by the inadequacy of every creature, he has his spirit lifted again by a consideration of Jesus Christ. The verse continues. In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. For those of you that are sensitive to literature, you probably noticed the strange shift John looks for the Lion of Judah, the root of David, in the place where you might expect to find him, which is on the throne. His attention goes to the throne with this kingly description. And he finds him on the throne indeed, but not bearing the character of a lion, but as a lamb slain. We find that the conquest of Jesus Christ was carried out in a very strange and mysterious manner. He got his victory by the blood of the cross and then entered into his glory. So he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, overcoming indeed, but he overcomes as the lamb that had been slain. 
Jesus Christ is portrayed here as in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures. He's on the throne, and so he is the very equal of God the Father. Remember, when this vision began, the throne was portrayed to us as occupied. Here you have the seat of cosmic power and authority, and God has not... uh, he has not demitted nor abdicated his throne and position. He is seen sitting there and ruling there. But God the Father is joined with another who is his equal. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in the midst of the throne. And so here we have a very important presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ to us as God. Children, you should remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God, the one only living and true God, together with his Father and the Holy Spirit. We do, however, enter into something of a mystery and a difficulty here, and uh, I call upon you to exercise yourselves as students because it requires careful attention. The living creatures have already been said to be in the midst of the throne and round about the throne. Look back at Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. The second half of the verse. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes. And before and behind. When we looked at this some time ago, we observed that these living creatures are portrayed as being around the throne and yet also in some manner upon it or connected with it. One thing is evident from the text here in Revelation chapter 5 Jesus Christ is closer to its center inasmuch as he is described as being in the midst of these four living creatures. But then the question becomes, how do we harmonize all of this? Certainly these living creatures are not God or gods. And yet they get a similar description of being in the midst of the throne, as Jesus Christ is described as being in the midst of the throne. This is uh, a small problem. One that has been perplexing to commentators where they sort of thrown up their hands and said that these descriptions are not meant to be exact, but just something of a general sketch, which is possible. But on balance, I don't think that that's quite the point. And we can glean some precious lessons by turning our attention back in history. Hold your place in Revelation, but turn back with me to Exodus chapter 25. God is giving Moses instructions on the building of the Ark of the Covenant. By the time we get to verse 17, which is where we pick up, he's already given instruction on the building of the, of the box. That's what an ark is. It's a box that has a lid on it. And he's given instruction on uh, the building of that with shatim wood and the overlaying of gold and so on. 
We pick up with verse 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one side and the other cherub on the other. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. There can be little doubt that the ark of the covenant was a type, was an image of Jesus Christ to come. I want you to notice first some of the basic descriptions. It's a box. Inside of it were placed the Ten Commandments. Here described as the testimony in verse 21. In the ark thou shalt put the testimony, that is, the Ten Commandments. The Lord Jesus Christ had the law of God written upon his heart. And he fulfilled all of the law of God so that his people might have mercy, so that they might come and find a propitiatory or mercy seat. And we should notice here that the ark is covered with a mercy seat. That's its lid, quite literally a propitiatory. God is propitiated or um, his wrath is assuaged, cooled satisfied by the person and work of Jesus Christ. For our uh, particular concerns, this mercy seat, as it's described, was made out of one piece of gold. There's an implicit lesson right here already. I know that when we read the scriptures and when we go through these descriptions with our families, we tend to hasten through, not knowing what to do with all of this description. I hope this morning that you'll see that these descriptions are very important and begin to tie many things together. The mercy seat was one solid piece of gold. It wasn't constructed out of parts that were welded together. It started as one lump of gold that they hammered out, but it was all just one single solid piece. Remember, this is sometimes portrayed as the throne of God. And sometimes portrayed as the footstool of God when he's portrayed as seated in the heavenlies. But both are a very uh, a similar sort of thing in that uh, God is portrayed as seated above it, as it were. But here we have one solid piece of gold. And I want you to notice also that the cherubs are hammered out of the same piece. They are golden. And it's not that they were constructed someplace else and then welded on. 
This one lump of gold was hammered out to not only form something of a solid and flat seat, but the cherubs were all part of that single piece of gold. Verse 18, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them. Notice that language, of beaten work. They are not uh, welded on. They are beaten out of the one single mass of gold. This is something of an image of ministers, the ministers of Jesus Christ in union with Christ and as extensions of his ministry. In other words, they are all one piece, as it were, with, uh, with Jesus Christ. This ought not to seem too strange to you. In the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the Acts of the Apostles begins with a strange statement. He, he looks back on uh, his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and Luke says that he told, he told Theophilus all the things that Jesus began to say and to do. As if the Acts of the Apostles were ongoing description of Christ's continued activities in the world. So in some ways, the book might be mistitled. Uh, I'm not complaining against the title, understand. But it could also fitly be titled, The Acts of Jesus Christ. Through the Apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So although we no longer see Jesus Christ on the earth ministering, that doesn't mean that he's not ministering on the earth. He continues his ministry on the earth by the spirit that he has sent through the agency of the apostles and then the other ministers that are, that are produced by them. Remember also that Paul thinks of his own ministry in this way. In the first chapter of Colossians, as he's taking the uh, gospel to the Gentiles, Something that it was always said that Messiah would do. Messiah will take the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember what we saw uh, just last week in Isaiah chapter 11. That he would be an ensign lifted to the Gentiles. And to him all the Gentiles would come. He would be like a flag or a banner lifted up. And all the Gentiles would be gathered to him. It was expected that Messiah would call the nations. And he did. And Paul, but Paul recognizes that he was doing it through the apostolic ministry and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, I fill up what was lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The uh, Roman Catholics have gotten that all fouled up and think that in some way we have to suffer in some measure because Christ's sufferings weren't fully sufficient. And they miss the point and the context of Colossians chapter 1. Paul's talking about his ministry among the Gentiles. It was not completed during the days that Christ was on earth. Only begun. Only some first instances like his Christ's preaching in Samaria, for example. And the few Gentiles that came and said, we want to see Jesus. You remember in the Gospel of John. It's only a few. But Paul is finishing that work of Jesus Christ. More properly, we might say Jesus Christ is finishing his messianic labors in Paul and through his ministry throughout all of the earth. And this is what I mean. Now, come back to the mercy seat. This image of Jesus Christ and the fullness of God's mercy and growing out of it as a single solid piece, this emblem of his ministers.
These cherubs in our description are said to look constantly toward the mercy seat, constantly toward Jesus Christ and the gospel of mercy, so that their minds might be full of the gospel. They are portrayed as looking one to another. You remember in our discussion of the four living creatures that they only have fullness of gifting when they are all put together. You have a similar image here that they are supposed to be working in company, in tandem. So they look toward the mercy seat, they look toward Christ, but they also look toward one another for the sake of uh, cooperation. In our day and age, we still have not yet seen a large degree of cooperation uh, among ministers. This is something that the scripture anticipates and actually gives us a promise. There will be a day when Zion's watchmen will see eye to eye. That day is not yet, but there is coming a day when the watchmen in Zion will see eye to eye. Interestingly enough, as the text concludes, over this mercy seat and between the cherubs, God promises that he will meet with his people. Founded upon the work of Jesus Christ and his purchased mercy, and in the midst of the ministry, the gospel ministry and its ordinances, God will meet with his people there. And beloved, I, I think that Revelation is about as perfect a description and recapitulation of this very same uh, truth as one can imagine. Christ is portrayed as being upon the throne. He is its mercy seat, the slain lamb. He is in the midst of the cherubs and they look toward him. Remember, they have eyes all around. They look toward him. They uh, surround him. But in some ways, it's almost as if they are all one piece with him. He is in the midst of the throne and they are portrayed as being in the midst of the throne as if they are one piece with it, but also surrounding it. And this is uh, a most perfect description of what you might have said concerning um, those cherubs of the ark. They are a part of it and they are on it and with their covering wings they surround it. In other words, I think that uh, John is seeing here the heavenly archetype and spiritual reality of the figure of the ark of the covenant. And the cherubs are arising, as it were, out of Jesus Christ and out of the throne as extensions of his own ministry among his people. We can draw from this some uh, conclusions concerning our Jesus. Each one of these could have been a separate doctrinal consideration in its own sermon. But sometimes it is helpful to look at these truths all together. And I hope that as we do so, that your heart might say, he is the cheapest among 10,000 and there is no one who compares to him. Inasmuch as Jesus Christ is in the midst of the throne, he shows himself to be very God. The full equal of his father. Jesus Christ is also the great prophet of his church. Remember these these living creatures were portrayed as having 
uh, eyes before and behind. So here we find them growing out of Christ, as it were, as extensions of his ministry. They have eyes uh, geared toward Christ and focused upon him, even as they have other sets of eyes to focus upon uh, God's people. Also, uh, in as much as they are portrayed as growing out of him, he also gives them vital strength. Do you remember at the end of the Gospel of Matthew when the Lord Jesus Christ gives his apostles commission to preach the Gospel and sends them out into all of the earth? This must have seemed like an impossible task. And what is the consolation that he gives them? The assurance that he gives them that not only will they perform this, but they will be successful. I am with you even to the end of the age providing his uh, ministers with vital strength and spiritual life. You might say it like this. If I were to try to summarize all of this, ministers only minister rightly when they are all one piece with Christ. Inasmuch as Jesus Christ is portrayed as being in the midst of the living creatures and the elders, we also get a very important picture of Christ being present in the midst of his church. This was something that was also portrayed of old. The Lord enthroned above the cherubim, above the Ark of the Covenant. All symbols and signs that the living God was present in the midst of Israel. Here John pulls the the veil back. We see with the seeing of the eye, we see material things. Here he presents to us spiritual realities to be embraced by faith. We don't see Christ with fleshly eyes, but the eyes of faith know him to be present in the midst of his church. A king sitting upon his throne. A ministering priest in the midst of the lampstands. You remember our first vision of Jesus Christ in Revelation (laughs) chapter 1. As he portrays himself in both royal and priestly garments. Tending to, to the light of the seven branched candlestick. The seven churches. Trimming the wicks carrying away the waste and supplying fresh oil so that they can burn brightly. Priestly ministrations. Never forget that he is present with us and that he is present and presiding over our assemblies. This is something that you can tell men. Something that you you can express in words. But for a man ever to have a sense of it, he needs the renewal of the Holy Ghost and a new nature and the grace of faith. Or it will always just seem like so many words. But uh, when God gives those things and we begin to apprehend His presence in our midst, it becomes a very joyous occasion. There's no better place to be than under the shelter of the wings of the living and true God. But it is also a frightful thing to come into His presence. Children, when you come for worship, you should always remember we're in the presence 
of the living God. Just this week in our family worship, we uh, were going through Leviticus. And they were told not ever to bring broken, maimed, or lame sacrifices. Or the God who was present in the midst of his people would be very angry with them. When we come to worship, we need to come with all of our minds and all of our hearts. If we come distracted and with our attention set upon other things, that is a broken and maimed sacrifice. And we can be sure that the Lord will be angry. He'll not be pleased. So it's a wonderful thing to be in the presence of God, but it's also a fearful thing. Knowing that he's present, let us be careful not to provoke him, but to continue in his presence in a lively and active faith upon Jesus Christ so that we might be accepted. One final part of this description. It's a strange bit, but the slain lamb is described as standing. From this, we learn some additional things concerning Jesus. He is the propitiatory sacrifice. He is a sacrifice to carry away guilt and reconcile us to the wrath and justice of God. Jesus Christ has already been portrayed in this way to us. In Revelation 1.5, he is praised for having washed his people's sins away in his own blood. And from all of this, we also learn that Jesus Christ was fully man. The divine nature cannot suffer. It cannot bleed. It cannot die. But inasmuch as Jesus Christ did both bleed and die, we know that he was certainly a full and true and real man. Here in the space of just a handful of words, we have Christ presented as fully God, seating sitting upon the divine throne and fully man, a bleeding, atoning sacrifice. Inasmuch as he's portrayed as a sacrificial victim, this is an aspect of his priesthood. He is a sacrifice to take away the guilt of sins. But here he is also portrayed as standing, crucified and dead, Yes, but raised to life forevermore indeed and ever living, as Paul taught the Hebrew Christians, ever living to make intercession for us. It was remarkable as I was looking at this and considering this, what a full presentation this is of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. A slain lamb, yes, but one standing and living to represent and make intercession for his people. And it's as if, in as much as he's portrayed as this slain lamb, this is his constant plea that we would be accepted based on the fact that he poured out his own blood for our acceptance. I thought that we might conclude with Psalm 110, if you will take out your psalters. <clears throat> sing Psalm 110 to the tune London New. Psalm 110. 
I picked this, uh, I believe it was Matthew Henry that called this uh, a profession of David's faith. But this is David's Christology, presented rather fully, but in just a few words. We have the Lord Jesus Christ portrayed as king, sitting on the right hand of God, while his enemies are being made a, a footstool beneath him. He is portrayed as a priest in verse 4, a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. He is portrayed as the prophet of his church, inasmuch as the rod of his power that went out from Zion and made a people willing in the day of his power can be nothing other than his word that is subduing men to himself. So we have Jesus Christ here as prophet, priest, and king. We see him also in his exaltation, uh, sitting at the right hand of power, and in his humiliation. Verse 7, the brook that runneth in the way with drink shall him supply. And for this cause and triumph he shall lift his head on high. First his humiliation living a humble life, taking his sustenance from the land of Judah and even drinking there from its rivers and waters. But because of his humiliation, because of, he was willing to humble himself even to the death of the cross, God exalted him and gave, it, gave him a name above every name. So we see a very full picture of Jesus. Let us stand and sing to his praise.